quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Two additional Memphis police officers have now been relieved of duty in the wake of the killing of Tyree Nichols. We're learning Officer Preston Hemphill, who, according to Memphis police, quote, participated in the initial traffic stop and the use of a taser, unquote, and another officer who hasn't yet been named. Well, they've both been relieved of their duty. And three Memphis Fire Department personnel have also been fired over the response to Tyree Nichols' beating scene. Now, that is in addition, everyone, to five police officers who have already been not only relieved of their duties, as in fired, but also charged. The DA saying, quote, this is an ongoing investigation. We are looking at all individuals involved in the events leading up to, during, and after the beating of Tyree Nichols. In a moment, we're going to do a deep dive into this case, the evidence, and what it will take to actually prosecute this case. But as a family and a community and a nation mourn, the funeral for Tyree Nichols is now set for this coming Wednesday. A funeral for a 29-year-old stopped by police and later beaten beyond recognition just a mere 80 yards from his own home, calling for his mother. The whole thing caught on videos that are still heartbreaking to watch. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that every time I hear those videos, every part of me does not flinch. And my stomach does not turn. And I don't think of my own son and everyone else's sons and all the mothers who heart ache because of what you're hearing. And those videos, they haunt anybody who has watched them. And a question, aside from the legality, aside from the illegality, aside from all of the contours and the nuance of trying to pick it apart as prosecutors in the court of public opinion, in the court of law, I've been wondering a lot about what we do with our horror and what we do with the pain. And what does seeing this over and over and over again, not just in this case, but so many others, what does this do to our psyches and our society when perhaps there's an inability to compartmentalize and a refusal to do so with that? We're going to dive deeper into that in a little bit. I want to bring in Memphis City Councilman J.B. Smiley Jr. as well. Councilman, thank you for being here this evening. You know, for so many people who have watched this and watched different parts of this video over and over again, one of the things people are pointing out 
are the number of other officers who were on the scene. We know that five have been charged, others they're calling relieved of their duty. First of all, um, I'm not sure if that's supposed to mean fired. Does that mean administratively dismissed and they're receiving pay? Does that mean there is investigation? Do you have a sense of what this relieved of duty phrase really means there? Well, relieved of duty essentially means um, in the city of Memphis that the individual is no longer working um, for the department, but it does not mean fired. Um, the administrative process has to take place in order in order for the individual to be fired. And the administrative process is not concluded yet. Interesting, because, of course, that's one of the things that people were honing in on with the five officers who were only fired pretty quickly, but charged, indicted, obviously. And there's a distinction now in terms of the other one we don't know the name of and one whose name we do know. Do you think we're going to see charges for additional officers more broadly or even the personnel, the medical personnel who was were on scene as the EMTs and fire department and failed to provide allegedly adequate service? Well, for me, um, I think every officer, every um, law enforcement officer, every EMT, and every individual who showed up on the scene should be immediately terminated. But just because they violated a policy, that does not necessarily mean criminal culpability. And that's up, up for the prosecutor to the district attorney to decide. But in, as it relates to changing the sense of culture, I think it's necessary in order to move forward as a community that every individual showed up to the scene, Mr. Hemphill especially. Well, Mr. Hemphill, he was, I believe, one of the officers who was initially involved in the traffic stop and the tasing incident, I believe, right? He made the comment, if I'm not mistaken, about... Um, you know, hoping that that this young man would be stomped in some way. Um, I, I am wondering, particularly with him, tell me why you feel he in particular ought to face accountability. I think when you look at it, um, what the entire world is saying, they talk about it's not just black police officers against black individuals, not just white police officers against black individuals. It's the culture. It's blue versus black and brown people. It's blue versus poor people. And if you want to drive out a culture that says that excessive force is commonplace, that says abuse of power is uh, accepted, you have to start with the root cause. And the root cause is the mentality that you can do whatever you want to and there's no consequences. And Mr. Hemphill's comments about uh, stumping Mr. Nichols to the ground is the first problem. You have to drive it out by setting an example. You know, frankly, for a number of the people who are on this scene, to your larger point, anyone could be the poster child of what never to do and hope to never do in a civilized society, let alone those who wear the uniform and profess to be peace officers. I do wonder, though, one of the retorts we often hear when we're talking about officer-involved deadly encounters is that there are questions about not only police morale and recruiting, but also the safety of the community if officers tend to have some sort of a backlash or retaliate through inaction down the line. Do you see anything like this happening in Memphis right now where officers or as a culture or as a community of a force are somehow approaching this as hands-off and not wanting to do the work? Not at all. But I think we look at it in a greater context. I think there's a nationwide shortage of police officers already. But the officers that we do have 
They take their job very seriously. They're not taking a hands-off approach. They're taking an approach that this is my job. I'm going to attempt to fulfill my duties every single day. I think this is a non-issue and misdirection. I certainly hope it is. And I certainly hope as we look to the funeral this coming Wednesday of Tyree Nichols, what will it mean to the community of Memphis and the nation more broadly that this man will have his funeral at the age of 29 and inexplicably as to why his life was lost? I think it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking for our community, heartbreaking for the entire nation to uh, have this conversation, to watch what transpired to Michael Nichols um, on film. But we've been having this conversation for several years now. It, it didn't start with just Eric Brown or Philander Castile, and now it's Mr. Nichols. I think as a nation, we have to understand that at some point, we have to accept the fact that it's the entire system. The entire system needs to be changed. We have to shift from a culture of accepting uh, excessive force, but to go into these uh, police departments and make culture-changing decisions. Really important point. Councilman, thank you so much. I appreciate your time this evening. Thank you for the opportunity. I mean, you know, the idea of never again to once again, here we are. And five fired Memphis police officers have each been charged with second-degree murder, and some are question whether prosecutors can make that charge stick. Well, Shelby County's DA, Stephen Mulroy, who's bringing these charges, is saying this about that. Under Tennessee law, in order for one to prove that there is a knowing killing, the only thing one must prove is that one acted with a course of conduct, whereas the defendant was reasonably certain that death may result. And we believe that all of the evidence taken together will show that, and we're confident that we have a strong case. Well, the DA is confident in his case. Let's take a close look at why that might be, what evidence he has so far through the eyes of what we have all seen from the publicly available information. And of course, everything we're seeing certainly is not going to be the totality of what the prosecutors are going to be looking at. And the investigation continues. But I'm joined now by defense attorney and former federal prosecutor Shan Wu and attorney and legal affairs commentator Ariva Martin. I'm glad that both of you are here because I really want to walk through and unpack a little bit about the second degree charge. You used the word knowing. But there are certain moments that I want to pick out from the video that really, I think, demonstrate in part, and I'll begin with you here, Shan, if we're breaking this down, there is first this horrible scene where you see him, Shan, um, being punched while he is restrained by officers. And I don't mean restrained in the sense that he is fighting back, but his arms clearly are being held. He has no opportunity to defend himself. He is holding his feet and miraculously standing up but enduring something incredible, incredibly violent here. And now, Shan, when you look at this moment and think about the second degree charge, about knowing behavior, knowing that the behavior or the culmination of it could lead to something deadly, what do you see? I really focus in on that restrained aspect, uh, that his hands are tied behind him. He is defenseless. He can't even hold up his hands to protect his head. And I think in that instant when you are any person, much less a police officer, you have someone who's helpless and you're teeing off and hitting them like that. I think that supplies the knowing part of that. That's going to be a very serious injury, 
no matter who it is. And Ariva, on that point, too, I mean, so often we think about officers being able to talk about the use of force, but it is essentially the amount of force necessary to repel a lethal force or some force against you. In other words, self-defense. When you look at that and see that this person, Tyree Nichols, is in no way striking back in some in any way, shape or form, what does that say to you about culpability for trying to pursue a charge with there's no use of force or self-defense? It says to me, Laura, that the prosecution has a very strong case. In addition to the, uh, you know, the beating that we saw that Shan just talked about that happened while Mr. Nichols' hands were behind his back and he was defenseless. To me, what was so telling about the charge of the knowing killing is when he's on the ground and they start kicking him in the head. Police officers know that when you use your foot and you kick someone in the head, they know how deadly those kinds of, uh, you know, that kind of contact can be for any individual. And they didn't just kick him once, Laura. They kicked him multiple times in the head. And these officers also knew Mr. Nichols, we haven't talked about this a great deal. He only weighed about 145 pounds. I mean, he was a tall, very thin man. So, I have a son and I was having this conversation with my husband who weighs about that amount. And he says even just a slight push on our son causes him to fall backwards. So we were just thinking about what was happening to Mr. Nichols' body to have these five men, all of whom were much bigger than him, use their body weight to hit him, to punch him, to restrain him, and then to kick him in the head as he lie defenselessly on the ground. So I don't think these defendants, Laura, are going to make any argument. I think they're going to be rushing to see who can tell on the other person, who can try to get a deal with the prosecutors. This is not a case they want to have tried uh, before a a jury. You know, interesting enough, I was talking to Shannon about this before we we came on today, about the idea of um, what happens next. And some people would think, as to your very point, Ariva, why take it to trial and why would one do this? But you think about it as a, looking for a cooperator. If you're the prosecutor, what do I need you as a cooperator for? I've got videotapes, right? What, what is my incentive to try to give you a plea other than, of course, to secure that conviction and not take the chance? Because we all know juries, perhaps they can have a different thought process than what the evidence at times shows. But I want to play these two clips back to back. And they're very difficult for me. I'm sure they are for both of you as well. We are all parents and thinking about what this means. And there's a, the first one I'm going to play for you is him calling out for his mother. We've heard this um, repeatedly. It frankly brings tears to my eyes every time I hear the gut-wrenching cry for his mother. And I hope to God she never hears this video for that reason. The second one is when he is no longer able to speak clearly, but he just sounds are emitting for, out of his body. Listen. I played those two because, Shan, there is obviously physical injury to him. There is obviously a change between him being able to enunciate and speak, 
mm-hmm. to sounds of pain and extraordinary just injury coming from his body. When you look at that, not as, not as the parent, not as the, the vis reaction of a human being, but as a prosecutor, what does that tell you? Well, it's very strong evidence for the knowing part. This person's already very injured. You know, from a defense standpoint, those officers could argue, I couldn't tell, I'm not a doctor, that something was going wrong with him, I thought he was high on drugs, something like that. They can argue those things or their counsel will, because I doubt that they'll testify. But the problem for them goes back to the fact that there's no evidence of him resisting. There's no reason that the need to continue to apply force to them. And that's the heart of the problem for them. But they can certainly put up arguments like, oh, I, you know, I'm not a doctor. I didn't realize that his condition was deteriorating. But I think for the jury, that's going to be devastating evidence against these defendants because you can see the terrible downhill decline right in front of your eyes. You really can. Don't worry. Stick around. Ariva, we're going to bring you back in the conversation as well in just a moment. But just to reiterate that point, I mean, Remember, part of what they have said, the DA, and part of the firing as well from the Memphis police chief was the failure to intervene and the failure to render aid and what the duty was owed to somebody in their custody at this point. Remember, custody, not free to leave. This is a criminal case, everyone, that will be decided in a court of law. But of course, the brutality that was unleashed on Tyree Nichols and captured in these videos it is extremely hard to watch. And I'm, I am wondering what these videos and videos like these are doing to our mental health. And frankly, how do we talk about what's happened? We'll go there next. By now, frankly, millions of Americans have watched the video of Memphis police officers beating, fatally beating, Tyree Nichols. Now, for many of us, it's our way of perhaps bearing witness. But videos like that, they are so hard to watch. And I know, I don't have to tell you this, they, they take a toll. And it's an extraordinary one. I want to talk about now with CNN political commentator Scott Jennings, former White House senior director Nayira Huck, and Dr. Jeff Gardier, a clinical and forensic psychologist. Dr. Gardier, I want to begin with you here because selfishly, I mean, you know, with the work that I do and the work that we all are really a part of, um, you know, we are required to obviously convey and inform and illuminate, and it requires a level of compartmentalizing. But there are far too many moments in between me being on this camera where it is difficult to reconcile what we are seeing. And it's haunting. And I wonder how you can advise people about how to deal with this. Well, first of all, uh, a 2018 Lancet study showed that when we are watching these very violent videos of people being attacked real life, that it can have an effect on us. PTSD, uh, acute stress disorder, insomnia, anxiety, uh, reliving that nightmare that we've seen over and over again. So it does affect us. You don't have to be right there when it's happening. Watching it on video affects 
uh, all of us. We've seen it with broadcast journalists. Laura, you're talking about what you've been experiencing, watching this video over and over again, seeing this happening over and over again. So I think it's really important that you, journalists, but all of us, debrief when we see these particular uh, horrific things, that we lean on people who get it, people who can understand us when we talk about what that pain feels like, what that anger feels like. But it's also important to share with people who have hope and who can give some insight as to how we can do better and recapture our humanity. It's an important point. And thinking about just, um, you know, Tyree Nichols' own mother, has said that she refuses to watch what's happened. And God, I understand why. Um, But there is something to be said. And I wonder if you can speak to the idea of people who are saying, I'm choosing not to watch it. I, I, I cannot. I cannot. And there is always this debate, perhaps internally, perhaps societally, about a responsibility to stay informed and to see what's happened. And also the grace to give oneself to say, I cannot. Yes, and I absolutely respect uh, people who say that they cannot watch this. Uh, Perhaps they've already been traumatized by watching these other uh, cases of police brutality, mass shootings, gun violence before, uh, and they can't do it any longer. And you have to know what your limits are. Um, Certainly, we don't want children to see this, but also understand that there are those of us who have to watch it. You have to watch it. Your guests who are here have had to watch it. I've had to watch it. Hopefully, there are enough people in society who have to watch this so that we can be reminded that this is a continuing issue with regards to systemic and maybe even overt racism and how it hurts black and brown people. So we have to be witness to this, but certainly those who cannot watch it, we have to respect that. And there's also other ways to learn about this without having to watch the videos. We can read about what's happened, which may be a little less traumatic. Let me bring in two parents and friends of mine who are on the set as well, Anaira Huck and um, Scott Jennings. You know, we, we all have children, you know, varying ages. Scott has like 30 children. Um, <laughs> you and I have, have yeah. two. Uh, but thinking about this, in, have you let your kids see this? I mean, do you have these conversations? Yours are awfully young. Six and two. Uh, and so they are just coming into their awareness of the world and they are black children. And so they're just starting to understand what that history means for them and their role in society. So he, he, my eldest at six is still understanding that at some point in time, not in the distant past, people of his skin color were enslaved by other people. And so we've talked about Martin Luther King. We've talked about power and what that means. But he still trusts police and society and authority to take care of him. And I need him to be able to go to a police officer if somebody's following home from kindergarten and and feel comfortable running to a police officer and trusting that. So I don't want to violate the trust, but I do at some point want him to have an awareness that his childhood understanding of fair and unfair and what it means to have power and what violence means only continues and expands in society in all of these ways. And and so I'm not trying to deny him that information. Uh, I don't want him to have his head in the sand as he grows older, but you can have awareness uh, and, but still not avoid the topic. Scott? Yeah. um, Friday night when the video came out, my nine-year-old and I were out uh, together. We got in the car and when we turned on the car, CNN was on and so we couldn't see it, but we could hear the audio. The audio was playing, like some of the worst of it. Right. 
So in that split second moment, I had to decide like what to tell. Cause he, he said, what is happening? You know, it was shocking. And so I ended up just saying, okay, let me just tell you what happened. And we talked through the news of it and he had some questions and, uh, and it was, you know, we were in the car for 25 minutes or so. And, you know, we had what I think was a good conversation about it. He's nine. He follows the news. You know, he, he's paying attention to the world. My assumption was he was going to hear about it anyway. And so I wanted to talk to him about what I thought, what, you know, I knew at the time and, and uh, what was happening. And it ended up being a good conversation. But I'll be honest, I'm worried that he heard the audio and if it's like on his mind. And um, to your point, you know, you want your children to, to believe that if something's happening to them, they're authority figures that they can turn to. You don't want them to mistrust all the uh, the authority figures that, that might be in our society or in their life if something if they witness something happening or something's happening to them. So I, it is worrisome. And, and I've I've second guessed myself since it happened. You know, should I have even should I have just like said, oh, it's an old story. Should I have basically told them not to I worry about so it? I'm so glad when we were talking about this and hearing this that not only did you choose the path of awareness uh, without showing him graphic video, mm. but that th- this is the type of conversation another generation of young white people need to have, that I now um, am tapping into a history of black families having to have a different type of conversation with their black sons about driving. So the video and audio, painful and awful as it is, is t- showing all of us collectively as a society that all these stories have been true it still happens. We were talking about, mm-hmm. in our younger years, being made aware of Rodney King in that video. That's 30 years ago. And now I'm going to have to have a similar conversation with my son at some point, And I don't know that I can tell him what's changed in this process. Really important. And, and for my own, my children have not seen it. But man, the added dimension of talking about these being black officers... I'm not sure how their little minds are reconciling what they have learned about race in America and what they learned about power in this country. So we're going to keep this conversation going. There are also very big developments in two cases, two legal cases, perhaps far more comfortable to tell our children about, which is quite telling. They involve former President Trump, and they both involve testimony before grand juries. We'll explain next. First on CNN, we're learning tonight that two people hired to search former President Trump's properties for classified documents have testified before a federal grand jury. The two found classified material inside a Florida storage facility. And a source telling CNN they testified for about, well, three hours each. That, as the New York Times is reporting, that the Manhattan DA has begun presenting evidence to a grand jury about the former president's role in paying hush money to Stormy Daniels in 2016. Here with me now to discuss, CNN political commentator Scott Jennings, former Obama White House Senior Director Nayira Huck, and defense attorney and former prosecutor Shan Wu is back with us as well. Let me begin here with you, Shan, on the idea of the grand juries being impaneled and talking about these two issues. Um, is there one that sticks out in your mind as creating a greater legal peril? Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry, which two are we talking Shall about? We- <laughs> 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 One of the ones we're talking about. Okay. Mm-hmm. Point taken. Right. I would say that, well, to me, it's a little bit of a frustrating exercise that the Stormy Daniels issue is just servicing now after all this Seven time. years later? Right, yeah. seven years later. I mean, 
From other reporting, it looks like the Bar Justice Department meddled in that. Uh, I frankly feel Alvin Bragg should have continued to pursue the other Trump charges since the former DA, as well as his career prosecutors and those closest to the case, felt that he should. But he seems more emboldened now to do that. And I think it's a, it's, it's a very simple case, really. And I don't know what the holdup would be. So I think if he chooses to go forward on the hush money case, that should be a pretty easy conviction to secure. The irony of this is that the president, former President Trump, is coming off of a weekend of campaign events reminiscent of 2016. And I'm like, oh, of course, Stormy Daniels is back in the news. You know, good for her for getting another 10 minutes of the public eye out of this. But it, it's that that idea of it, what's old is new again. It hasn't changed. Some of the messaging was still the same this last weekend, too, of Trump is still angry. And now there's you know a possibility of the affair and hush money. And it just it hasn't changed. And we're all tired. Hasn't changed what? The approach of Republicans towards him or the idea of that this is even part of a conversation this long, like six, seven years later, we are still having a similar conversation. It's deja vu. And these cases were not resolved, right? So we may have resolved it emotionally and politically of trying to move on, but the legal system, as, it, as you said, whether it's interference or just the slow wheel of justice, is bringing all of this back right at this political moment when we're considering what the future of our country should look like. I mean, Michael Cohen might think it's a faster wheel of justice on these very issues, right? He was convicted similarly in this situation, but your point is not lost. And the idea of you have a lot of people who are thinking of all of the things that Donald Trump, the former president, had coming at him, that it would either disincentivize him for running, it would discourage him, it would eliminate him from the ranks. But no one seems to be essentially putting the nail in the political coffin mm-hmm. to do anything proactive to have that happen. Well, I think DeSantis, the governor of Florida, appears to me like he's going to run. And of all the possible opponents, he's clearly and by far the strongest. I don't know exactly how these legal issues are going to affect Trump's standing, but I know there are a lot of Republicans out there who are ready to move on. They're just looking for the next lily pad. And DeSantis looks like a fair bet. On this Stormy Daniels business, A, I thought you said this segment would be easier for us to talk to our children about. <laughs> B, I, will, I think the idea... It could be. I mean, I don't know you talking to kids about I don't, I don't know at what yeah. time the birds and the bees comes up. I don't know your situation. The idea that he would be indicted, we can think of all the things that have happened to this guy, that he's done, that's gone on. The idea that he would be indicted for this, as opposed to overthrowing the U.S. government, trying, or whatever, it, it, to me it's so trivial. I'm not saying, maybe he did break, but I don't know. But it just strikes me that the Georgia case, serious case. The January 6th cases, serious, serious things that we all were sort of horrified by. The this, documents, this, this thing here, I mean, we haven't how- talked about Stormy Daniels in years. And now you're telling me the Manhattan DA is going to say, we got him now. On oh. what? Stormy Daniels. It makes no sense. Have to you me. ever heard the phrase, the straw that breaks the camel's back? That would it's be not going to be this. The, the, but this is going to seem ridiculous to people when the other ones aren't. When the other ones aren't. Yeah. Well, it's it's trivial because it's easier to prove. So in terms of holding them accountable, slam dunk, really easy to prove. For what? The what case. Did, what did, Tell, explain it's, this to it, me. It, it's, Campaign it's for, finance violence. It's, it's for a crime that has actually toppled other governments in other democratic countries. It is corruption. It is paying people off, bribery. And 
we have just lost perspective with, as you said, all the other bad things that have happened that have been out there that this does seem just trivial because it was not that long ago uh, that we were upset and horrified when presidents just stepped out of their marriage, let alone actually involved other endeavors. I got to tell you, I remember not too long ago we were reporting on um, how the Manhattan DA's office did not want a particular book published because they wanted to have more information about an ongoing investigation. And we all thought, What's the ongoing investigation and why not? Well, I guess we are learning some more information about that tonight. But see, Scott, that was easier to talk about with your kids. I don't know. Daddy, Campaign what's finance. Stormy Daniels? I, look, <laughs> I don't want to be in your house tonight, so I'm saying about that. But she is a noted director. Thank you very much. A car plunging some 250 feet off of a cliff on the California coast, and all four family members survived. But... Prosecutors allege that the driver did it on purpose, and now he is charged with attempted murder of his wife and his two children. That story next. Well, tonight, a California man is facing three counts of attempted murder. Prosecutors allege that 41-year-old Darmesh Patel intentionally drove his wife and two young children off a 250-foot cliff on a stretch of coastal highway south of San Francisco just earlier this month. And astonishingly, everyone in the car survived. For more on the story, I'm joined now by CNN correspondent Veronica Miracle. Veronica, what is the latest you're learning tonight about what is really a truly shocking case? It is very disturbing, Laura, and the district attorney says they, in fact, have enough evidence to believe that Dharmesh Patel deliberately tried to kill his own wife and children when he drove hundreds of feet off of that cliff. Uh, when this first happened, first responders said it was nothing short of a miracle that all four family members survived. And you can see in that video, it speaks for itself. The car is hardly recognizable. Dharmesh Patel was in court today. He has been charged with three counts of attempted murder two of those counts enhanced with domestic violence charges. And uh, when he was in court today, uh, the San Mateo County District Attorney said that they don't have enough evidence exactly, or uh, excuse me, they currently at this point were not able to share with us exactly what the motive was, but they were able to share with us exactly what that evidence was. Take a listen. I would put it in a couple of categories of evidence there. Number one would be uh, Eyewitness testimony, the people who were driving behind him, described for us very, very in good detail about the vehicle's movements, the fact of uh, lack of brake lights, things of that nature. And then number uh, two, on the Tom Lantos tunnel, there is a, uh, there are cameras on that. And so we have video showing the movement of the car as it went, after it left the tunnel, went up the hill, went, turned off of the road, and then turned to go down the cliff. And Patel just got out of the hospital on Friday, and that's why he was in court today. Laura? The DA said that they haven't spoken with the suspect's wife yet, Veronica. I mean, what do we know about the condition of his family, including his children? 
Well, the district attorney did tell us that the wife was seriously injured, but she has since been out of the hospital for a couple of weeks. Uh, the seven-year-old child also had injuries, but is recovering, and that four-year-old child incredibly was not injured. But the district attorney said that a couple of weeks ago, the wife's attorney contacted prosecutors and said, until she is physically able to speak to investigators, she does not want to do any kind of interview, and so that still has not happened yet. Laura? Thank you so much, Veronica. I want to bring in now Shan Wu and also Reva Martin is back with us. I mean, Shan, the DA is saying that um, this is being treated as a domestic violence case as well. How will that impact this investigation? Well, with domestic violence cases, I think the testimony of the wife is going to be critical. Obviously, there's the children involved, too. And that's a very delicate situation. That, as you know, you have to have a child interview specialist and as a prosecutor, you don't really want to have to have those children be testifying against their father. I was taken aback at some of the reporting I saw where the judge did not grant a full no-contact order against the defendant in this case, which I think is a very odd situation. But I think that the uh, wife's testimony will be really critical. And a lot of speculation about motive, but as the DA alluded to, you already have evidence without the motive. Domestic violence case three can be so volatile and leading to what we've seen here. And I just wonder, does it surprise you they have not yet spoken to the wife or gotten her before a grand jury of some kind or interviewed her yet? It really doesn't, Laurie, given the significance of this accident or what she's saying is an intentional effort to kill her and her children. And there's some reporting out there that she told the paramedics as they were taking her out of that car and lifting her off that cliff that it was intentional. So I think that statement that she apparently gave to those first responders is playing into the prosecutor's decision to charge the husband with attempted murder with the enhancement for domestic violence. I think it's basically, well, I think it's very logical for the prosecutor to wait until she is better until she's recovered, until she's able to give a full statement. Uh, such a tragic case, but we know are all too often women die as a result of domestic violence. We have seen these cases before. In this case, if it was an intentional act on the part of this uh, husband, it would have been an attempt at a murder-suicide because he too would have died if his plan, again, if it was an intentional plan, if, if his plan had have been carried out uh, because people wow. don't recover from going off a cliff 250 you know, 250,000 feet, I think, or 250 feet uh, the way this car... Well, thank God. Thank God they all survived. I mean, the idea of a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and just, I mean, just thinking about what that must be like for them trying to process it, let alone the wife. And um, we'll look, look to continue to cover this really important case. Thank you both. Thanks. Well, there is freezing rain and snow impacting a huge swath of our country with winter weather advisories all the way from Texas all the way to West Virginia. And it's leading to dangerous roads and, of course, flight cancellations as well. So where it's hitting the hardest is next. A major winter storm is bearing down on the south, bringing a mix of freezing rain, sleet, ice, snow, and bitter cold. 38 million Americans feeling the storm's impact with treacherous roads and flight cancellations. In Texas, for example, driving in and around the Dallas area was slow and dangerous. Light freezing precipitation, excuse me, creating an icy glaze on road surfaces, causing scores of accidents. 
and more than 1,000 flights were canceled due to the storm. Crews in Dallas spent the day de-icing planes. FlightAware, that flight tracking service, reports that in addition to all those cancellations, more than 4,000 flights were delayed nationwide. The winter storm is expected to move northward into the mid-Atlantic states. Well, Tyree Nichols, given dozens of commands that were confusing, that were contradictory, and frankly, impossible to follow. We'll break it down for you. Well, there is more fallout tonight from the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols. The Memphis Fire Department firing three employees, saying the medics and driver failed to properly assess Nichols when they arrived on that scene. This coming as officials confirm that two more Memphis police officers were also relieved of duty. That's the phrase they have used. That's on top of the five other officers who were fired and charged with second-degree murder, among other crimes, in Nichols' death. I want to bring in Donnell Harvin. He is the former head of intelligence for the D.C. Homeland Security Department. Also here with us, Ron Johnson, retired captain of the Missouri State Highway Patrol and former incident commander in Ferguson, Missouri. Glad to have both of you here today. Thank you for joining me. I'll begin with you, Donnell, because there was a New York Times analysis, which I was particularly interested in, and it found that the officers in this encounter, shouted at least 71 commands. 71 commands in approximately a 13-minute period. And I want to play a clip, frankly, from that initial stop for a moment. Listen to this. Get the fuck out the fucking car! Damn, I didn't do anything! Hey, I didn't turn your ass around! All right, all right, all right, all right. I mean, just hearing this yet again, frankly, it is anxiety producing to say the least. Um, and I wonder about this, the screaming, the, the confusion that must have ensued, the disorienting nature. How disorienting would this have been for somebody to be receiving all these commands in the way that they're receiving it? And of course, the aggressive nature as well at that initial stop. Well, it's clear he didn't even know what he was getting pulled over for. So there's an immediate shock getting pulled over. Uh, and then many police academies, and, and I went through the police academy, we were trained not to do that. Uh, I'll let your law enforcement analysts get to really the nuts and bolts of that. But uh, when, you, when you go through the police academy, they instruct you to have one individual interacting with that, uh, with that person uh, so that you don't have those conflicting uh, type of commands because uh, then people don't know what to do. And the, and the more it escalates, the, the, the more yelling there is, uh, the more confused the individual gets. And so that's exactly what you saw there. And if you, you know, later on, uh, it gets even worse. It really does. And I bring you in our Captain Johnson. Not only, first of all, the, the confusion, but how calm compared to the officers Tyree Nichols was. He was the one in that video we just played 
who appeared to be trying to use some kind of de-escalation tactics, the, the cooler head attempting to prevail. And I, I wonder what should the officers have done besides none of this, but what should the officers have done to try to mitigate and try to de-escalate? What would have been the appropriate training to follow? Well, they were a unit. And so one person should have been designated to uh, give the commands. There were many commands there and you're right. Uh, so many, there's no way he could perform them all of uh, the tone of the conversation. And he was de-escalating. But when you have units like that, uses one person as designating, uh, you know, you hear get on the ground, you hear lay on the ground, you put your hands behind your back uh, and you hear the tone. So the tone really set uh, a lot of confusion and you're right. Uh, Tyrese was really trying to uh, de-escalate in many ways throughout this encounter. And by the way, on that point, I mean, we talk about the contradictory commands. We see throughout the video, um, throughout the time, that he is being told to show me your hands, show me your hands. And yet there is no actual possibility that when both hands are restrained by different officers, he could actually have complied to be able to give his hands or show his hands, not to mention that he was physically injured at that point. The idea of that contradictory commands, did that seem to you as though they never really had an intention of having him to comply and these were intended to just be sucker punches and harming him? Well, I think it got to a point where those officers were out of control. Uh, they, they weren't using their training uh, and they were just intent on uh, being aggressive and overpowering uh, Tyrese. And so at some point, you're right, somebody's grabbing his hands and someone's going to put it, let me see your hands. And so he's trying to follow who, who knows what commands he's trying to follow because he's hearing so many. Uh, and so I think these officers really got outside of the training. Most of the stuff we saw in that video uh has never been trained in some of the blows and some of the tactics that we saw in these videos. And Danelle, I want to bring you in because you actually have a, a new piece out talking about who else should be prosecuted. And you say prosecute the medics who watched Tyree Nichols die. And in one part you say in nearly every police involved murder and abuse of force, there is a silent party on the scene whose actions typically go unnoticed, the rescue and medical responders who fail to treat these victims properly. You say you think that the Memphis Fire Department and those responding should also face criminal charges. Tell me why. Well, absolutely. Just because you're not landing blows or, or kicking uh, doesn't mean that you're not uh, responsible. These individuals had what we call uh, a duty to act, and they breached that duty. You don't have to have a trained eye. You don't need to be a 25-year paramedic like I was uh, to see that. These individuals are, are milling around the scene. They're not doing anything. Uh, and the first thing, the first rule of medicine is to do no harm. Uh, clearly, I think in my personal opinion, my professional opinion, uh, it speaks to uh, an environment, perhaps a culture uh, in the streets of Memphis for emergency responders where this is the norm or accepted. Um, I've worked a lot of departments and I would be aghast at seeing this and no one's stopping it. And so I call these, uh, you know, these people are are silent perpetrators. Um, They're not committing the active violence, but they're committing passive violence. And we really need to understand the, 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 the dynamics behind that and, and why that was so pervasive that, that so many people are, are getting essentially laid off for not doing anything when they should have done something. 
so important. And thank you for your time and insight, both of you, on this very important point. I mean, it was Tyree uh, Nichols whose hands were restrained, not those whose job it was to at least even perform a cursory inspection of what happened. I want to turn now to Democratic Congressman Stephen Horsford. He's the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus here with us this evening. Congressman, thank you for being here. It is difficult to watch this happen. We go from never again to once again. And in that space and in that vein, legislation possibly could fill that gap. I do wonder what your reaction is and to what can be done at a legislative level to go from once again, back to never again. Well, first, thank you for having me on. Um, on behalf of the Congressional Black Caucus, we are committed to doing everything we possibly can, working across party lines with the president, um, with our community and the families to uplift their voice. Uh, I spoke to uh, Tyrese Nichols' um, father and his mother by phone on Sunday. Um, to hear directly from them to express our condolences on behalf of the Congressional Black Caucus and to ask them, what do they want? And what they told me first is to remind people who Tyree Nichols was. He was a son. He was a father. He had purpose and passion and a life ahead of him. He loved skateboarding and photography. And while going to his mother's home, just 80 yards away, he was pulled away for a supposed traffic violation that resulted in him being beaten. And in the course of that, yelling out, Mama. And he ended up dying a few days later. Yes, bad policing practices are happening in Memphis, but the problem is, too many of these incidents are happening all over America. Now, this is something that all of us should be able to agree. Bad policing shouldn't exist anywhere in America. This is not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. This is about safety. All of us should want safety. And as a black man, as a father, as someone who has responsibility to serve my constituents, I want them to come home safe. A parent wants a child who leaves to go to the park to come home at the end of the day. All of us want to be able to live in our homes in peace. And if you're stopped in a traffic violation or not, it should not result in you being beaten and ultimately die. And so we are working across legislative solutions. We've talked to the president around executive actions that he can take and the administration can take. What did the president say about that? So we talked to the president twice today. I did. First is he is very committed to this issue. We asked him to make this issue of the culture of policing one of the issues that he addresses in his State of the Union, mm. because this is important enough for it to be a part of his national address. We also are meeting with him later this week to talk about what additional actions he can possibly take. Commend him for the actions he did last May, but we believe there's more that can be done while we work on a bipartisan solution in Congress. We also uh, reached out and have a meeting with Senator Tim Scott uh, tomorrow and in the coming days 
to talk about a bipartisan solution in Congress. It's going to take all of us. This is not a black issue or a white issue. This is about a safety issue in America. Do you get a sense that there is an appetite for this to be a bipartisan endeavor as well? Oftentimes we hear about, and the word anecdote comes to mind, that people will relegate instances like this as, oh, this is anecdotal, and they'll um, disparage the notion of the bad apple conversations. But you speak about this in a very holistic way. Is there an appetite for Republicans who are in power in the House to see it that way? You know, I have to remain optimistic. People told us we weren't going to pass a comprehensive gun safety bill. We passed the most comprehensive bill in nearly 30 years. The president was involved in that. We brought both sides together. We passed the infrastructure bill. They told us we couldn't do that. We must make our community safer. And all of us should agree bad policing shouldn't exist anywhere in America. One of the other reports that have been shared with me is the fact that in Memphis, for example, the use of force is used three times more often on black people, black residents, than on white people in Memphis. They know that. We should know that about every law enforcement agency across America. That's about having the data to then make good decisions on pattern of practices. Some cities and law enforcement uh, agencies do this, others don't. That's why we need federal action as one example of a holistic plan. I mean, the idea of trying to do away with a patchwork of systems, I mean, trying to police a patchwork of police departments and hope for a conform, you know, uniform standard is really an exercise in futility. So I hope there is some comprehensive legislation that is, in fact, coming. Thank you for your optimism. It's exactly what we need to have. I mean, if we, if we stop and give up, then where will we be? The American people are counting on us, and we're going to work tirelessly across the aisle with all of our stakeholders. And I'll just say one more thing. The American people have a a stake in this too. Call your member of Congress, call your senator, reach out about what you want to have done. Lift up the family of Tyree Nichols and every other family that's been affected, but all of us can do something to get rid of bad policing in America. Congressman, thank you for your time. Nice speaking with you today. When we come back, we're going to talk about 2024 and why, according to one of my next guests, some Democrats are worried about Vice President Kamala Harris's political prospects and what that might mean for President Joe Biden's reelection hopes. President Biden is now halfway through his term, and it appears that he may decide to seek re-election. That's his intention, he has said repeatedly, which means there's talk about the presidential ticket. A new article in The Washington Post quotes some Democrats who are, quite frankly, well, underwhelmed by Vice President Kamala Harris's tenure in the role. Is that fair criticism or not? Let's talk about it now with CNN political commentators Jonah Goldberg and Karen Finney and Cleve Wootson, White House reporter for The Post, who wrote this really compelling and thought-provoking piece as well. Let me begin with you on this, Cleve, because you spoke to more than a dozen Democratic leaders in key states, mm-hmm. and they seem to be worried about Vice President Kamala Harris. Why? Yeah, I really wanted to codify and, and cement things that we've been hearing in the rumor mill and the grist mill, right, and, and just talk to as many people as possible about strengths, weaknesses, where really Kamala Harris is at this moment. Um, It's a complex argument, if we're being honest. 
folks know that if Kamala Harris is, you know, is the nominee, is the person that there's going to be all kinds of stuff that's thrown out of her, right? You know, race, gender, all of this stuff. And so the question is, can Kamala Harris sort of overcome all of the stuff that will, uh, you know, come her way if she's the nominee, uh, if, if she's running for president? And a lot of folks that I talk to just have worries, just have concerns about whether she can do that. I mean, first of all, it assumes, obviously, that Biden, in fact, will not run and that she'd be the heir apparent as sure. the vice president. Are the concerns surrounding her portfolio? I mean, she's you know been tasked with really uh, splicing the atom at sure, this point sure. for a lot of things she's been tasked <laughs> with. Is that the concern? Yeah. A lot of the Democrats that I talk to are like county chairs, the folks who understand the arc of democratic policies, but they, they also are dealing with people on the ground, right? And their concerns with Kamala Harris really deal with their conversations with their neighbors, the people that they're mm-hmm. going to go out and try to persuade to vote for her. Um, it's not necessarily just the portfolio as much as it is, how is Kamala Harris as a communicator? Is she gaff prone and does she make mistakes? Does she inspire people? Does she have the charisma to sort of, you know, win the ticket? For a lot of folks, it's, it's, it's really there's a lot of cognitive dissonance because for, many of them have worked a very long time to see a black woman in this position, mm-hmm. right? The, the big tent party, right? But at the same time, they also want to win. And that's the question. Does, does Harris have both the big tent aspect but also the winning ticket aspect? That's, that's really all they're asking. Well, SNL was asking a question about whether this could get a laugh. Let me play for you what they had to say when they were doing a little spoof on classified documents and whether the vice president had any. Next, Special Agent Casey Combs will discuss if there were any classified documents at Vice President Kamala Harris's home. Come on now. (laughs) Joe Biden won't even give this woman a pen. (laughs) You think she has classified documents? Please, Kamala Harris with classified documents. (laughs) I mean, that that was, you're you're laughing. What do you think of it, Jonah? Oh, I think it was funny. (laughs) Um, But uh, that's mostly why I was laughing. But uh, look, I think that reflects one side of the argument. There are a bunch of people out there who think uh, Harris hasn't been given the opportunities to shine and thrive and, 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 and succeed. Um, and you hear that, a lot of that kind of stuff from Harris' world, that you know, she, the, the president hasn't given her, set her up to succeed and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And then there are a lot of people uh, who I, I'm more inclined to agree with uh, who think that she's been given lots of opportunities to succeed, and she's just not that great a politician. Uh, she came up in a state where she was good for California, good for winning in an essentially a one-party state where she could work the Democratic Party very well. But there's a reason why um, her approval ratings have been lower than Biden's throughout uh, his, this presidency. And I think there's, a, there's also the fact, I actually think this is a very good thing, that the Democratic Party is getting out of the business, I wish the Republican Party would, of getting out of the business of saying that we have to vote for someone to you know, uh, manifest our hopes and dreams in our souls and instead try to nominate people who can win elections. Because that's what parties are for. Mm-hmm. And the aspirational candidate kind of thing 
uh, I get a little exhausted with. It's what parties may be for, but is that what democracy is well, for? Donald Trump can win an election. That doesn't mean he should have been president. That wasn't a good decision. I mean, so it's what? not just about who can win. It's also about, but more importantly, what I just, does that have to do with anything I said? I mean, I don't. You just I, said I, you said it shouldn't be about manifesting hopes and dreams. It should be about whether or not yeah. they can win elections. And I said the original Republican Party had gotten off that stuff because one of the reasons they nominated Donald Trump is they just thought they wanted a fighter. They didn't care if he could do anything. Anyway, I feel like, you know, this story, obviously I am close to the vice president. I have worked for women candidates for almost 30 years. A lot of what we're seeing here are just typical tropes. And this narrative comes around and around and around. You know, there was just an interview last week with a gentleman writing a book about the Biden administration. It may have been on your show. I can't remember. And he talked about how she's the person who the president had inform um, Ukraine about the impending um, uh, that Russia was about to invade. But more importantly, here, here's part of where I, I think the challenge is. It is always hard when you are a historic first. And I do think that this administration, when they were a campaign, could have done a better job of having more intentionality about understanding, for example, early on that people wanted to see more of her because they were excited. But the very job of being the vice president is you're not seen. You're behind the scenes. You're the number two. You're in the supporting role. But we did and see it, a lot of Vice President Joe Biden. We didn't, though. There's a lot. When I asked people about, for example, when he went, when he visited the Triangle countries, not a single reporter that I talked to could remember that trip. Maybe it was the so, gaffes we remember. Exactly. That's, that's what, what it is. People remember the gaffes. They don't, they maybe remember that he did some of the negotiations around in 2011. My point is just, I also would say that I think we need to remember this role was defined for a white man. And so by its very definition, with a historic first, it's going to look different, it's going to sound different, it's going to feel different. And my experience has been, I mean, think of, consider, I mean, Cleve, you were there in Tallahassee, Florida. They had to turn away 400 people in the rain. I don't know a Democrat that could get 2,000 people out in the rain. So in the, among the party in the base, she's actually very popular. I know you spoke to some folks who had different opinions. All I think what they also talked about is just anxiety about sexism and racism. And, you know, again, I think part of what we have to understand is it's going to, we have to see her for who she is. And I'll give you an example. You know, early on, I had conversations with reporters about how critical it was. She brought lived experience, different relationships with women's organizations, with reproductive rights organizations. So many of the insiders said, that doesn't, like, why, that's, why does that matter? Look at where we are now. That was a critical part of our victory in 2022. And she spent a lot of time talking to black voters, women, and young people, which really are the core of the party. Did you reach out to her office for comment? Oh, of course. Yeah, no comment, though, from them. Not on the record. Mm. Um, I, I agree. I think that race, gender, and equity always play a role in everything that I've been writing about Kamala Harris for two years as VP and then in her campaign before that. But I do think that Democrats also have a question about competence, about charisma, about any number of things. I don't, I don't think that it's okay to take away, to strip away race, gender, all those matters but of equity. But that, I think I that there's... Tell you though, I do a lot of polling and she typically polls very high among Democrats. I mean, she saved, really was very critical in Karen Bass's race. Why? Because she was able to help bring out the Democratic Party base. Same thing in New York when state when we were in big trouble. Who did they call in? 
Kamala. There were but a number of states. Democrats. They're looking for somebody who can win. No, I understand what you're House. saying. Democrats say, and I'm saying there are plenty well, of Democrats I'm, I'm, I'm who say about, something very talking, different. Well, I've talked to Democrats across across the board. I've talked to ones that were hardcore supporters. The first one to endorse her in South Carolina, the first to endorse her in Georgia, a woman who, who cried with joy the night that Kamala Harris was inaugurated. But I've also talked to people who have been supporters of Harris, but also have questions not about what they feel, but about what their neighbors think, about of people course. who uh, would be voting in a general election. And that's what those fears are based, because there is some there is aspiration and and yeah. rightly so but there is also a desire to win biden said on the campaign trail over and over again in order to govern you mm. also have to win sure yeah. well i i got to tell you where this is going to be a, a conversation we'll continue to have but in breaking news a woman of color in the limelight judged differently than her peers huh. shocking <laughs> Look, everyone, it's going to be a Super Bowl of historic proportions. Two black quarterbacks facing off on the sport's biggest stage for the first time. And it's not at the White House. We'll be right back. The Super Bowl is set, everyone, on February 12th. The Kansas City Chiefs will face off against the Philadelphia Eagles. This Super Bowl will be a big game for firsts. The first time two black quarterbacks ever face off against each other at the big game. And also the first time two brothers, Jason and Travis Kels, are playing against each other in the Super Bowl. Imagine being their mom, Donna Kelsey. Joining me now, Super Bowl 22 MVP Doug Williams is here with us. He's also the first black quarterback to start in and win a Super Bowl. Also here with us, senior contributor Carrie Champion. I'm glad to have both of you here today as we're reflecting on the history that is about to be made. I'll begin with you, mm-hmm. Doug, if I can, because you yourself made history in Super Bowl 22, and now we are here at 57 for the first time seeing two black quarterbacks against each other in the big game. What is your reaction and feeling about this moment? First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I can remember some 45 years ago that Vince Evans and myself was uh, the first two black quarterbacks played in, in, a, in a regular NFL game back in now when I was at Tampa and he was at Chicago. And, and last night um, when I was sitting there watching uh, Patrick, I'd already seen Jalen uh, uh, win his game and sitting there watching Patrick, so many, so many anxiety came through to me and, and from an emotional standpoint, you know, I got kind of emotional to see that really happening that uh, 35 years later, tomorrow be 35 year anniversary, actually tomorrow. And to see that happen uh, last night was, was really gratifying to me. You know, I know it might be to a lot of other people like James Harris, the Warren Moons and, and, and the Marlon Briscoe blesses. So them kind of guys, but to see this happen today and, and knowing that we've come a long ways and we still got a long ways to go. First of all, um, my father will be thrilled I'm talking to you. And second of all, being from Minnesota, thank you for mentioning a Viking as well and Warren Moon. Appreciate you for that moment right there. A quick follow-up to you on this point, though. I mean, it's not just that they it's, a, it's history being made in two black quarterbacks. They're also extremely talented quarterbacks. And I don't want that effort to get lost in the conversation. What will you be looking for in this matchup? Well, you know, both of them is, is so good at what they do. J- Jalen, for instance, you know, I watched Jalen when he was in college 
his early years, his first couple of years in, at Alabama, and and watching him now and see how much he has done to to make himself out of a quarterback. You know, I don't want people to say that he's an athletic quarterback. Yes, he can run, but he also can stand in the pocket and, and throw the ball and read defense and run if he has to. He's not playing the position because he can run. He can play because he can think and he can get the ball down the field. And, and you talk about Patrick Mahomes, I don't think nobody can say anything about Patrick for what he's done since he's been the starting quarterback in Kansas City because nobody can, can play it the way he's played and, and, and the toughness is there. So when you got two guys like that, you got two of the best quarterbacks in the National Football League. Carrie, I want to bring you in here as well because it's something that um, Doug just said about that they're, he's, that they're thinking players as well. And so often you and I both know that the way that many talk about athletes in this country, especially in the sport of football, um, there is a lot of coded language that is used to talk about and describe. And I wonder if you can speak to the idea of you know, although you have so many black men in particular who really comprise a majority of football players in the professional league, you don't often see many quarterbacks that are black, number one. And number two, they're often described, as Doug was alluding to, very differently as opposed to thinking, the intellectual player. They're described in terms of their physical stature and beyond and athleticism, so to speak. Speak to me about this historic nature of what we're seeing and the way it's being talked about. Well, first off, I, it's an honor to be here with Doug Williams. I, I, I want to, to underscore the importance of what he was able to do uh, as the very first black quarterback to start and also win a Super Bowl. We honor you. I feel as if 2023 is far too late for us to say, guess what? We have two black starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. Um, it is the, the narrative uh, of black quarterbacks is old. It's tired. And quite frankly, we've seen over and over again that these black quarterbacks have been able to not only sustain the position, be more than serviceable in this position, we can go down the list. If we talk about Michael Vick, if we talk about a Cam Newton, there, has been, there have been so many before these two young men now. And what these two young men now, what we see what they're doing, what they are doing as quarterbacks is um, more than historic. It, they are the generation. They are the next Brady versus Manning. They are the future of quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, what, I, what I'd like for us to really take away from this, though, Laura, is that looking at these black quarterbacks, it's far too, it's far too uh, discouraging for these head coaches that are not black to see these black quarterbacks in these positions. This is the conversation now that we need to have to say, guess what? If we're looking at these black quarterbacks starting in the Super Bowl who have made their way, who've paid their dues, isn't it time for us to look for their head coaches? Isn't it time to have that conversation as we've been trying to have and we continue to push it aside? I can tell you right now that there are offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators who have helped these young men get to the point where they are right now and and, and succeed at, the, at this level, right? The, the, the penultimate, which is winning this game and getting to the game. And they don't see a black quarterback on the sidelines, a black head coach rather on the sidelines. And I'm so grateful that we're having this moment where we're celebrating these two young, these two young kids, right? They're so young, 27 mm. and 24. 
and they're winning at the highest level. And I know that there is a black head coach sitting somewhere thinking it's my turn too. And so I'm glad that we're having this conversation. It's far too ridiculous in 2023 that we're celebrating two black quarterbacks when we, that should just be the norm. It shouldn't even be a conversation. I hear you, you Carrie. I hear you quite well. And I hope that Doug Williams, he lost his, um, his visual, but I hope he heard the praises that you sung to him. And obviously the idea, I'm sure that there are so many people right now who are anticipating the Super Bowl who want to be in the big game, let alone to have been the MVP like Doug Williams. Thank you both this evening. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. Priscilla Presley contesting the validity of her late daughter, Lisa Marie Presley's will. The petition comes just days after Presley laid her daughter to rest at Graceland. Joining me now is CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson and the Rap.com founder and editor-in-chief Sharon Waxman. Thank you both for being here. I want to begin with you, Sharon, on this. What changes were made to Lisa Marie Presley's will back in 2016 that Priscilla is challenging? So she's saying that the trustee has was changed. Uh, she's challenging the fact that an amendment was filed to make the trustee Riley and her uh, brother uh, Benjamin, who is no longer with us. Uh, and that means basically that Priscilla Presley is challenging her granddaughter's, you know, validity to be the person who is now, you know, dealing with her mother's estate. I just say that in these kinds of cases, when you have these huge celebrities, it's really not that unusual that the family ends up in a big public dispute. But she's Mm. saying that the signature doesn't look like it's Lisa Marie's. She's saying that she was not informed of this change to the trusteeship that she has. She's claiming that, that she wants to remain the trustee of that will. And so, there's going to be a lot of money at stake here, but it really is pitting a grandmother against a granddaughter. It's very unfortunate. Very sad to think about. And Joey, I mean, the idea, as Sharon points out, it's not um, unheard of to have disputes, particularly in the idea of an estate. But talk to me about um, what the next steps might be and the idea of are, are there are these really problems that you have seen and what can be done in terms of trying to validate a will with these issues that have been identified be fatal to yeah. what comes yeah. next? Yeah, Laura, good to be with you and uh, Sharon. Listen, the reality is, is that, you know, Laura, it's all about the evidence and all about the proof. And if someone has a will, a will, of course, is a document. And if you want to amend it, it's legally binding in the event that there are certain formalities in place. In order to do that, right, witnesses uh, have to witness what you do. Uh, certainly, there should not be a misspelling of a name if it happens, uh, you know, certainly uh, to be your mom. And so someone can change or do whatever they want. But to your question and the point is that it's subject to an evidentiary hearing. And at that hearing, it would have to be established that it's an authentic document. In the event that you have a will, you can put in place and do anything and everything you want. It's up to you, right? It's your prerogative with respect to how you want to control your assets, who you want to leave them to. But if the formalities are not in place, 
case, it is subject to challenge. And at such a hearing, there will be an opportunity to determine whether it's valid or not. If it's not valid, of course, then and it's contested as it is, then it's declared invalid. And as a result of that, you can see the changes that are being made in the event that is deemed to be authentic, then the will then pursues as it is written now. And so I think regardless, it's a person's right to do it. The bottom line is to get it right and to have it right. And hopefully at such a hearing, it'll be determined that it is right. So we'll see what happens moving forward. Joey Jackson taking us back to law school. Professor, I'm going to call you from now on on this very notion. Sharon, real quick in the time you we have left. That, I mean, right? I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm impressed. I got to ask you, Sharon, really quick. I mean, the idea, this is, I mean, this family in particular and the estate we're talking about, very significant. Yeah, I mean, there's reports that there's uh, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in a life insurance policy. Lisa Marie got into a dispute with her business manager a few years ago and was suing him for squandering a $100 million estate that she had from her father. So there is money on the line here, and we still don't know how much money, obviously, um, Lisa Marie had debts. And it's going to be messy. I'm just going to remind our viewers that it took more than a decade to settle Michael Jackson's estate when he died. And he died swimming in debt, for those of us who covered that story, which included me. And there, But there was money there, and it ended up going to his mother and his children and some charities. But it took, I believe, 12 years for wow. that to get sorted out. Well, we will follow what happens here. Thank you both. I appreciate it so much. Everyone, up next, another mystery at the Dallas Zoo. We'll explain next. Well, the Dallas Zoo, it has been struck again, people. This time, two emperor tamarind monkeys are now missing. Now, the zoo officials say that it's clear that their habitat has now been intentionally compromised. And police say it looks like the animals were actually taken. Now, the area around their habitat has been searched, and presently there is no sign of the monkeys. If you recall, earlier this very month, the clouded leopard escaped after the fence in her habitat was cut. Now, the leopard in that scenario was eventually found. Zoo officials then discovered the Langer monkey enclosure was tampered with, but no Langers escaped. Then, an endangered lappet-faced vulture was found dead in its own habitat. The zoo says it did not die of natural causes. I want to bring in now wildlife biologist Jeff Corwin, host of Wildlife Nation. Jeff, what is happening now? You're talking about now a fourth animal that has been impacted and two now missing. What are you thinking? Well, there's definitely a crime underway and uh, and the, the great spectrum of wildlife on our planet is paying the price. Again, Dallas Zoo, a world-class zoo, but they've got a major problem on their hand. I'm quite challenged now that they know that they have this challenge with losing these animals, with uh, animals being killed, for example, the lapid-faced vulture. In this case, these incredibly charismatic little primates, you know, when you think of a a monkey lore, you probably think of something big like a spider monkey or or a chimpanzee like an ape. But uh, these emperor tamarins are really about this big. They're a tiny, very charismatic monkey. They actually are named uh, after the uh, German emperor uh, Wilhelm II with his big, long, um, prestigious mustache. This is a creature that falls prey to the black market wildlife trade. 
which is a $60 billion industry. So I remember earlier conversation, we, we were talking about could these animals be stolen and then sold in the black market? This is a species that's an ideal candidate for that. I mean, just thinking about that, I'm wondering not only about being a candidate for that, but also how would they be surviving outside of a habitat? I would suspect that there's a lot of regulation in terms of their food, in terms of what their, what their enclosure looks like. Could the average person, even who is trying to then use and sell them on the black market, they might be in danger and even trying to replicate that habitat? Well, I would say whoever this nefarious character is, who's uh, you know put the, the clouded leopard at jeopardy, who's impacted those other very rare uh, monkeys from Southeast Asia, who's likely killed the lapid vulture. This is like a, a, a very, uh, this is a horrible version of animal clue who done it. But with this creature right here, um, my guess is that this nefarious character probably knows a little bit about animals. This person is getting unusual access. This individual can get inside the zoo and is now knowing how to negotiate where to cut in. And it's almost right. like he's testing the waters, like someone who's, who, who, you know, who's committing that first fire and then goes back and watches the blaze. It, it, it's like this. It, there's a real neurosis to this this criminal. And unfortunately, now these animals are disappeared, these very uh, precious, precocious primates. My guess that they'll figure out how to take care of these animals. They're, the, these little monkeys are probably more used to people and accustomed to their zoological uh, keepers and handlers than, for example, the clouded leopard is. Thank you so much for talking to you again. Thank you very much. Look, thank you for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.